Welcome back to Mark's Madness. (laughs) We're back. We're doing it again. Doing it again. Once more into the breach, we are starting. We are we are plowing through to the end of this chapter. Uh, to the end of this book, we I the bar is very skinny on the right hand side on my scroll bar. Mm-hmm. It's so close, so close, so close. <laughs> uh, we will we will finish this work. God dang it! Uh, but that being said, uh, this is Mark's Madness Pod. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we are going to be taking our delightful tour through Black Reconstruction in America back towards slavery. Uh, Content warnings up top. Uh, We're just going to start doing that for this week. I have no idea what's going on uh, and what might come up, but just a general content warning. Uh, This chapter has so far been very, very heavy on uh, violent imagery. Uh, as it as as Doctor Du Bois is not pulling any punches as he shouldn't, but just if if that is something that you know, I just something I, something we need to confront. Uh, it's something we need to be honest about, and that we definitely need to 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 recognize. But if that is something that you know will be triggering in any way for you, uh, just know that that may be coming. Mm-hmm. That being said, let us start as we always do with David giving us current events, if there are any. Uh, yeah, so something I wanted to bring up because um, I'm not very good at remembering what year it is, uh, and so it had to be pointed out, and now we're looking back in retrospect. This last week, as of the day we're recording, it might be two weeks or whatever by the time we get the episode out, uh, was the 50th anniversary of the Attica Uprising, uh, a, yes. a famous uh, prison uprising uh, where about, I think it was 12... 1300 something like that prisoners got together and basically took hostage of um under 100 but a significant number of guards right uh and they did this uh because of the you know absolutely ungodly conditions in in attica and even prisons today i mean continue the, the u.s the fact that we we kick our Orientalism into high gear when we hear gulag, which of course is just the Russian word for prison and gulags existed uh, before, you know, the Russian uh, revolution in 1917. And of course, you know, they, they were the, the less bad, not the horrible genocidal thing. That was the pogroms <laughs> at the time. So the fact that they get, you know, compared to concentration camps is kind of silly. Not that any prison is, is any kind of walk in the park at any point in time in any society. Uh, but America's prisons are especially bad. Um, you know, I mean, we have torture chambers we call solitary confinement. We have unfit sanitation and water. Right now, of course, during COVID, we have plenty of uh, guards and, and uh, they like to call themselves correctional officers, uh, but the cops that, that patrol it. Um who intentionally don't wear masks, intentionally don't get vaccinated because they know they can get real good treatment, medical care. But these, these inmates that they dehumanize, they can absolutely torture with a deadly pandemic. And then they're in control of what medical care they get and they're packed into small cells. So if one of them gets sick and 30 inmates get sick, ho, 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 you know, Um, I mean, just horrible conditions today. And, and yet they are vastly, better in many ways than what happened from Attica. Attica Attica was a huge turning point in bettering uh, prison conditions, which was part of the demands. Um, It was about a four day, five day, four day, four day um, affair 
Um, and it was very well organized, right? Um, very well read. I mean, people had read Mao and George Jackson and, and Franz Fanon and Lenin. I, these are, these were politically minded, politically educated people doing an organized action for specific righteous demands. Um, and they had, their demands were, were mostly being met, but then they asked, of course, for a general amnesty. I mean, you know, of course, if they get their demands met, but then they get just obliterated in backlash as a punishment for, for what they did, that doesn't help them in prisons, a very bad place to try to protest, you know, yeah. um, incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we saw that with the, the hunger strikes and the, the things like that, you know, over time where, where it's, it's very, very dangerous uh, to do prison strikes. Um, and, and so, you know, I mean, anyone from, you know, Frank Lott to Don Nobel to, or Don Noble to, uh, you know, Carl Jones L uh, to Big Blacksmith to, you know, L.D. Barkley, all those guys, they they were very, very well organized um, political actors. OK. And at the end, mo- all their demands were met except the amnesty. This was a push by uh, the governor of New York. Um who was Nelson Rockefeller? Yeah. Yes, that yes. Nelson Rockefeller, um, that son of a bitch. Uh, the guy. What was he? Vice president under Ford. Um, I believe. And of course, so. yes, vice and president of course, um, for Joe Ford. Yeah, and of course, you know, I mean, came from that Rockefeller line. Was always a a Republican. Was a supposedly moderate one, but he was one of the leading anti-communist forces in a, a very anti-communist government. Um, just absolute monster of a human being really ties well into what we're talking about here with Northern capital siding with Southern plantation owners. Um, and of course, so then he, he to show his strong hand and weirdly after like this and after the, the 19, you know, 79 uh, siege of the U S embassy in Iran, strangely like military and police movies in the eighties and nineties started having this plot line of, going in and rescuing hostages from the terrorists. Hmm. I wonder where they get that idea. <laughs> um, you know, propaganda never rests. And um, so, I mean, he basically sent in a force to go in and just slaughter them. Um, you know, I mean, obviously the, the less sympathetic people, um, the, the, the bootlicking bastards will call it a riot. Uh, it should rightly be called an uprising. And, and of course I have no problem with sympathetically calling it a, a massacre. I hate doing that because it erases the political work of, um, the organizers and and you know the the inmates who actually did the uprising and, and puts the entire onus on the state. Um, but that is what the state did. They they slaughtered people. It was a massacre in in Attica. It killed forty people, uh, wounded almost a hundred. Um, a few a few of the cops died in the process. Uh, again, minor numbers compared to the the prisoners that did. Um, and so. You know, we need to remember that. We need to remember the revolutionary spirit. We need to carry on the revolutionary spirit. And we need to use that, understand that, learn from that as something where we, we should always center ourselves. You know, one of the, the great points of liberation is prison abolition. It is a social control system. It is a real manifestation um, to where police as an industrial complex work. Uh, it is, you know, a death knell where they throw black people and indigenous people in all the time. It is a way to uphold the caste, the colonial caste um, that the settled colony has. It's to upload classism. And I mean, we see it all the time, right? You know, if a law has a fine or costs you bail to get out, then it's, it's only a it's law, law for, for the, the poor. poor. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, if an expensive lawyer can get you out of jail, but a cheap or a state assigned lawyer can't, it's a law for the poor. Everything is a law for the poor. Um, and of course that, that means reinforcing the people who have been made poor with colonization and enslavement in this country as well. Um, so we need to, you know, carry on the revolutionary spirit of those martyrs. We need to learn from them. Um, we need to learn, you know, uh, philosophically, we need to learn the lessons they learned in their uprising. Uh, and we need to carry on um, that sort of organizing in everything we do and and remember exactly who we're fighting for every time we fight. In addition to ourselves, obviously, we're always all fighting for ourselves, but in addition to ourselves, who we're fighting for. Um, and so, again, you know, 50th anniversary of, of those brave martyrs and, and the great revolutionary actions they took, which paid dividends for decades in conditions in U.S. prisons. And again, with the conditions people in U.S. prisons are mired in today, even after that, shows just how horrific U.S. prisons have always, always been. Thank you so much for that, David. Uh, That being said, we are going to jump into the work for this week, uh, starting in page 673, uh, second paragraph down. The unrest and bitterness of post-war lawlessness were gradually transmuted into economic pressure. Systematic efforts were made by the owners to put the Negro to work, an equally determined effort by the poor whites to keep him from work, which competed with them or threatened their future work and income. Cotton and other crops were high in price, and hard work would soon restore something of the losses of war. The planters offered the ex-slaves, therefore, a labor contract and were surprised when he refused. He had to refuse. The plantation laborer, under the conditions offered, would still be a slave, with a small chance to rise to the position of independent farmer or even of a free modern laborer. On the other hand, the poor whites were determined to keep the blacks from access to the richer and better land from which slavery had driven the white peasants. A three-cornered battle ensued and increased lawless aggression. Recurrent farm crop failures due to the weather made more trouble, and at the same time, the wars of Europe, the Seven Weeks War and the Franco-Prussian War, disturbed civilization. In such an economic revolution, the cost of change and uplift ought to fall on the community, the nation, and the government. The plantation land should have gone to those who worked it, and the former owners should have been compensated in some part for the lost investment made with the social sanction of the nation. To this should have been added economic opportunity and access to the land for the poor whites. But such a possible outcome was frustrated by the economic selfishness of the North and by the intransient intransigent attitude of the vast majority of the planters. They did not believe in freedom for Negroes, and they sought to frustrate it by law, force, and deliberate cheating, and by arrogant demands for economic license and political power such as no sane nation could grant. This result was federal reconstruction. A lawlessness which in 1865 to 1868 was still spasmodic and episodic now became organized, and its real underlying industrial causes obscured by political excuses and race hatred. Using a technique of mass and midnight murder, the South began widely organized aggression upon the Negroes. When Congress intervened by its reconstruction measures to defeat the reactionary program of the South, there swept over that section a crime storm of devastating fury. Lawlessness and violence filled the land, and terror stalked abroad by day, and it burned and murdered by night. The southern states had actually relapsed into barbarism. During that period, a new generation was conceived and born to the south of both races that was literally conceived in lawlessness and born into crime-producing conditions. 
Lawlessness was its inheritance, and the red splotch of violence its birthmark. Armed guerrilla warfare killed thousands of Negroes. Political riots were staged. Their causes or occasions were always obscure. Their results always certain. 10 to 100 times as many Negroes were killed as whites. Then differences began to arise. Instead of driving the Negroes to work, bands of poor whites began to drive them from work. Private vengeance was taken upon prosperous and hardworking Negroes. A number of Negroes were employed in building the airline railroad between Atlanta and Charlotte. Disguised men went there, took the Negroes, and whipped them and forced them back to the farms to work. They were receiving money wages for working on the railroad. A man from Ohio, living in Clarendon County, South Carolina, had his stock and business amounting to 40000 a year entirely destroyed. There were a good many industrious men who, if they could get a start, would make crops of their own and become independent farmers. In every such case where colored men could bring recommendations there of evidence of industry, he would take advances to them as well as to the white man. The farmers, the farmers about complained that in this way he was taking away laborers and making Negroes independent farmers. They whipped him, ruined his business, and drove him out of the state. In Choctaw County, Alabama, a colored man, Robert Fullerlove, lived... That, that was a dumb way to read that sentence. In Choctaw <laughs> County, Alabama, a colored man, Robert Fullerlove, lived. That is just a weird sentence all around. Masked yeah. men shot into his house and burned it. He and his neighbors were killed and driven away. I have 400 acres of land. I have about 20 head of cattle, little and big. I have an ox team, and in the lot of cattle, there are seven milk cows. I have corn and fodder and hogs. I had a very fine crop of cotton planted and was going over it when this last raid happened at my house. I have lost my crop entirely, and it isn't worthwhile for me to stay. I am a hardworking man, and I love what I have worked for and earned. Augustus Blair of Huntsville, Alabama, was a hardworking old black man who had stayed at home during the war and helped to take care of little white children. The Ku Klux Klan came to his house, seized his son, and beat and maltreated him. He got so he could get about a little. I hired a wagon and fetched him here, but he but directly he came here. He was taken down with a hemorrhage that came from stamping him on the stomach and breast. They stamped him all over the stomach and breast. In two weeks after he was examined in the courtroom there, he died. Everybody that saw him said he couldn't live and that they were surprised that he lived so long. I had the doctors to tend to him. I owe 40 or $50 to Dr. Henry Benford. He asked me for the money on Saturday. After all this was done, I knew every man of them, and I came here and made complaint. Mr. Wager assisted me, and Jim Common of Athens told me to have them arrested before the grand jury. I had a good deal of property down there. I had 30 heads of hogs and four bales of cotton. I had four bales ginned and fetched my cotton there and sold it. They looked for me to go back. I left my wife and young child there. I didn't, I didn't want to go away. I hadn't done anything, but I believed they would have treated me just the same way, and I went away. I left 30 head of hogs and one good milk cow, four bales of cotton, and my corn in the field. Jim Common told me to sue for it. I went down there, and all my things were gone. So, again, you see, and as always, this is detailing something that is incredibly violent. Dispossession is always, always violent, formal or informal. Um, But something you notice about this process is they were enslaved, right? And so when they break out as freedmen, they become people of the land. They were always the ones that worked the land. They were these, you know, failed efforts time after time of giving them land. And you see, these are even a few people that, that arrived at, at having it. They start becoming 
the people that that live off the land and they have to be subjugated in some way they have to be dominated in some way they cannot you know they cannot be a threat to the ruling class um, and to the settler colony and so out of slavery comes a violent process of colonization yep. where they're being colonized in a land that they belong to because they were dumped there and abused there and used there as slaves. Yep. These happenings were not confined to particular regions. They spread all over the South. In 1866, the first church for colored people was opened by the American Missionary Association at Memphis, ten- at Memphis, Tennessee. God, none of us can read sentences today. <laughs> uh, it was burned with all the colored churches in Memphis in the riot that year. In 18 months, ending June 30th, 1867, General Canby reported 197 murders, 548 cases of aggravated assault in North and South Carolina. In reference to South Carolina, the report of the Joint Selection Committee of the two Houses of Congress of 1872 contains such a mass of revolting details that one cannot decide where to begin their citation or where to stop. Murders or attempts to murder are numerous. Whippings are without number. Probably the most cruel and cowardly of these last was the whipping of Elias Hill. He was a colored man who had from infancy been dwarfed in legs and arms. He was unable to use either, but he possessed an intelligent mind, had learned to read, and had acquired an unusual amount of knowledge for one of his circumstances. He was a Baptist preacher. He was highly respected for his upright character. He was eminently religious and was greatly revered by the people for his own race. It was on this ground that he was visited by the Ku Klux, brutally beaten and dragged from his house into the yard where he was left in the cold at night, unable to walk or crawl. A report from South Carolina tells of 97 Negroes killed, 146 shot and whipped. There are riots because of the arming of Negroes. White farmers who are displaced as tenants attack the Negro tenants. Negro churches are burned. In one community, four-fifths of the Negro men are sleeping out in the woods. Gins and gin houses are burned in retaliation by Negroes. Colored women are whipped and raped by whites. In some cases, the white landholders try to protect Negroes, while the irresponsible poor whites led the attack. In another community, 11 murders and more than 600 whippings have gone unnoticed, while there are seven cases of incendiary burnings. Negro artisans are stopped for following their trade, and the antagonism between poor whites and Negroes grows. Six Negro foundry men are beaten and blacksmiths whipped. And you, you see a situation, and of course this is a much more grotesque and brutal um, expression of that, uh, what we're reading about here, but you do see this in a more subtle way today um so it's kind of one of those things where you teach people hate and propaganda in order to secure their power and then that hate manifests and pandora is already out of the box and you kind of see this with the the anti-vax stuff right there's this huge wave of anti-vax as a reaction of covid denial right the anti-vax thing is not because right-wing people don't believe in vaccines it's because they're busy denying covid this is you know on the backs of course you know decades of denying climate change and and things like that right well if you're denying covid then what's the vaccine gonna do well it's a government conspiracy to put a bill gates microchip in you or whatever the fuck and don't get it twisted there are a very large sect of right-wingers that are 
anti-vaccine on their face as someone that's dealt with this in the autism community. Sure. Um, it it sure. is from Andrew Wakefield yeah, on. That's, there that's is a an inherently eugenicist of, view. Yeah, yeah, that's inherently you tend eugenicist view. So that that settles right into the right wing, and that and that's. But you notice there's more anti-vaxxers about COVID than run of the mill anti-vaxxers too, and so you know this is something where again they they build this narrative of COVID isn't real, COVID isn't real. Why why would we wear masks? Why would we send everybody home? You need to get out there and work. Their interest is just get out there and work, sell things, stop slowing down my economy. I have profits to think about. Mind you, the richest of the rich are skyrocketing in, in value anyway. But remember, the most right-wing people are not even necessarily the richest people. They're the regionally richest people, right? The richest person in a county is guaranteed to be right-wing versus the richest person in the world isn't – or richest 10 people in the world aren't necessarily gar- guaranteed to be right-wing. So much as within the window of we think right-wing versus liberal. Obviously, liberal isn't actually a left-wing view. They're all right-wing. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you get what I'm saying, right? The, the the openly fascist, the Trump supporters, the Republicans, the people are more likely to be Republican um, or more, you know, openly, explicitly right leaning if they're wealthier within a region than, you know, if they're wealthier within a community than if they're wealthier overall. It, they both track, but wealthier within a, a region or community makes tracks way, way better. Um, and so of course, you know, I mean, these small business owners and stuff, they're not necessarily making out like Bill Gates and this shit. They want the businesses running. They want the economy going. And so the whole right wing gets this denial. Well, that trickles down to, to vaccines. Of course, there's already, like you said, anti-vaxxers because it's a very Genesis view nestled into the right wing and that blows up. Right. And this is, this is not, this is not talking about like, you know, say, black people who have America's history to rightly be skeptical. And and we just certainly hope they aren't. Um, This is talking about the far greater number of white people who are anti-vax or anti-mask or anything like that. You know, COVID denialists, right? Because, because this nihilism is settled in. And it got to the point where like, it's not just people in prisons. It's not just old people. It's not just colonized people and service workers that are dying. Now the right wingers are starting to take up the ICU beds with this Delta variant, right? Yeah. Um, after the large vaccination campaigns, it's not like there's not still certainly, you know, immunocompromised people like say, you know, people who've accepted an organ donation to, to survive that can't take vaccines uh, that aren't dying from this. It's not like you can't take a vaccine and have a breakthrough case, but the overwhelming number of people dying are unvaccinated. And while there are left and right wing people that are unvaccinated, there is a huge contingent of, of right wing people that are, that wasn't there before. It was used to be just basically a huge contingent of prisoners and service workers. So it's not just a, a purely, Oh, only black people are dying. Let me get my haircuts thing anymore. And yet Sean Hannity can't go up there and say, Hey, everybody take a vaccine. Now the genie's already out of the bottle. Yeah. And so you see this here, right? This right wing, this, this, this white supremacist violence against black people having property. And so it was even talking about like, there were some wealthy, some propertyed white people. Maybe they made business relations. Maybe they stopped caring that, you know, they've, they've accepted, they've lost their, their slaves are gone and they don't care if the, the, the workers are black or white. So they're happy to have, black, and they're protecting the black people and the animus that was driven into poor white people had already taken hold. And, yeah. and had come out in a violent reaction. And so this is a phenomenon you see, and this tracks extremely, extremely well with fascism. And it's a big part of why fascism rests so much on attacking marginalized groups, because you can't get this large animated group of people to protect, you know, 
capitalism in in crisis or capitalism that just lost its huge bevy of slaves for free labor in its agrarian i guess it's not fully you know uh, industrialized economy but it's agrarian economy when it's met in crisis how do you animize everyone to not put forth a new system to not say this is broken well you get them on their side it's a marginalized group's fault and once you've done that you can't you can't go back you just have to keep going down that road in Edgefield and Lawrence County, South Carolina, there were organized bands of regulators, armed men who make it their business to traverse these counties and maltreat Negroes without any avowed definite purpose in view. They treat the Negroes in many instances in the most horrible and atrocious manner, even to maiming them, cutting their ears off, etc. In one case, two citizens of one of these counties testified against these parties and were instantly compelled to leave the county, barely escaping with their lives. The citizens are bound in honor by an understanding or compact among them not to testify against these regulators, so that it is impossible to get evidence against them unless the Negro gives it. The report of the Ku Klux investigation, published in 1871, said of South Carolina that in the nine counties covered by the investigation for a period of approximately six months, the Ku Klux... Excuse me. The Ku Klux Klan lynched and murdered 35 men, whipped 262 men and women, otherwise outranged, shot, mutilated, burned out, etc., 101 persons. It committed two cases of sex offenses against Negro women. During this time, the Negroes killed four men, beat one man, committed 16 other outrages, but no case of torture. No case is found of a white woman seduced or raped by a Negro. The reasons given for the Ku Klux outrages were significantly varied. The victim should suffer in revenge for killing, and some cases, and for some cases, arson. They were Republicans. They were radical. They had attempted to hold elections. They were carrying arms. They were hard N word. They were damn hard N word. They boasted that they would own land, that they should be made to recant Republican principles, and they should give desired information. In Georgia in 1868, disturbances are reported in the northwest section where the poor whites are in the majority. Negroes were whipped for debt, for associating with white women, and for trying to vote. In the Cotton Belt, where the Negroes outnumber the whites, three white members of the legislature were killed, and there were insurrections and riots culminating in the one at Camilla. In this case, 300 Republicans, mostly Negroes, with music and banner, were marching to hold a public meeting. They were met by the sheriff and told that they could not meet. A riot ensued where eight or nine Negroes were killed. The Negro Secretary of State, Jonathan Gibbs in Florida, when called before a committee of Congress in 1871, reported 153 murders in Jackson County in that state. Conditions in Texas were particularly bad. In 1869, in 30 counties, there was no civil government, and in others, very imperfect organizations. During Sheridan's command of the state, there were nine murders a month. If he owned both hell and Texas, Sheridan said upon one occasion, he would rent out Texas and live in hell. A statement which was repeated over the country for a generation. Benjamin F. Wade added to this that he was told by a native, all the Texas needs to make it a paradise is water and good society. Yes, answered Wade, that's all they need in hell. A committee of the Constitutional Convention of 1868 on partial return said that that 1,035 men had been murdered in Texas since the close of the war. And a federal attorney said that the number might have been 2,000. The Secretary of State reports to the Texas Senate that 905 homicides had taken place in two years, ending in 1870, and he believed that if all the facts were known, the total would be 1,500. 
1870, after the new state government was organized, it was officially reported that 2,970 persons charged with murder were evading arrest in the state, and two to seven murders were often attributed to the same individual. From war, turmoil, poverty, forced labor, and economic uh, economic rivalry of labor groups, there came again in the South the domination of the secret order which systematized the effort to subordinate the Negro. The method of force which hides itself in secrecy is a method as old as humanity. The kind of thing that men are afraid or ashamed to do openly, and by day they accomplish secretly, mass, and at night. That method has certain advantages. It uses fear to cast out fear. It dares, it dares things at which open methods hesitate. It may, with a certain impunity, attack the high and the low. It need hesitate at no outrage of maiming or murder. It shields itself in the mob mind and then throws over all a veil of darkness which becomes glamour. It attracts people who otherwise could not be reached. It harnesses the mob. How is it that men who want certain things done by brute force can so often depend on the mob? Total depravity, human hate, and schadenfreude do not fully explain the mob spirit in America. Before the wide eyes of the mob is ever the shape of fear. Back of the writhing, yelling, cruel-eyed demons who break, destroy, maim, lynch, and burn at the stake is a knot, large or small, of normal human beings. And these human beings at heart are desperately afraid of something. Of what? Of many things, but usually of losing their jobs, being declassed, degraded, or actually disgraced. Of losing their hopes, their savings, their plans for their children, of the actual pangs of hunger, of dirt, of crime. And of all this, most ubiquitous in modern industrial society is that fear of unemployment. It is its nucleus of ordinary men that continually gives the mob its initial and awful impetus. Around this nucleus, to be sure, gather snowball-wise all manner of flotsam, filth, and human garbage, and every lewdness of alcohol in current fashion. But all this is the horrible covering of the inner nucleus of fear. I uh, I want to kind of revisit something we've mentioned before, and that is that we don't, for obvious reasons, we don't like the economic anxiety narrative that, that popped up when Trump was elected that basically makes it seem like, oh, these people are just poor and hurting and... And we just need to, you know, they're the most poor. We need to give them money. They they lashed out with Trump, and then and we should be sympathetic to that in some way. And yet, the narrative of economic anxiety, if you take it on its face, if you don't buy into the effects or what's being implied, if you just straight up take it as economic anxiety, it's a hundred percent true, justified or not. There's like this in-group, this this peer pressure of, of white supremacy. And so in an economic system that makes people inherently unstable, always fearing falling off, right? If you're a capitalist, you always have to expand. Or if not, you fall into the proletariat. If you're a proletarian, you can't ever lose your job and fall into a lower rung of a proletarian or, or fall you know, into unemployment and, and the lump in, right? If, if you're an armed guard of the state, you can't you know, not do your job well enough and get thrown out of it and have to go be a worker. There's always this anxiety of falling down a rung and people that are up a rung and suddenly fear falling down, lash out. And since they can't lash out at those people who have more power than them, unless they collaborate and organize and build a socialist project to fight up, they instead do the much simpler, shorter route and they lash out at the people who are classed below them by society. 
How then is the mob to be met and quelled? If it represents public opinion, even passing passionate public opinion, it cannot permanently be put down by a police which public opinion appoints and pays. Three methods of quelling the mob are at hand. The first, by proving to its human, honest nucleus that the fear is false, ill-grounded, unnecessary. Or secondly, if its fear is true or apparently or partially true by attacking the fearful thing opening either by the organized police power or by frank civil war, as did Mussolini and George Washington. Or thirdly, by secret, hidden, underground ways, the method of the Ku Klux Klan. I do appreciate Du Bois tying Mussolini and George Washington together. Thank you. Yeah, I love love that hip. Love that, that, that binding there. Yes. Why do we not take the first way? Because this is a world that believes in war and ignorance and has no hope in our day of realizing an intelligent majority of men and peace on earth. There are many, many exceptions, but in general, it is true that there is scarcely a bishop in Christendom, a priest in the church, a president, governor, mayor, or legislator in the United States, a college professor or public school teacher who does not, in the end, stand by war and ignorance as the main method for settlement of our pressing human problems. And this despite the fact that they may deny it with their mouths every day. Oh, Du Bois. Yeah, that. Hold on. Can we frame that paragraph? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh- Put it up. Put it up. <laughs> But here again, open civil war is difficult, costly, and hard to guide. The right toward which it aims must be made obvious, even if it is wrong. In 1918, in order to win the war, he had to make Germans into Huns. In order to win the South, had to make Negroes into thieves, monsters, and idiots. Tomorrow, we must make Latins, Southeastern Europeans, Turks, and other Asiatics into lesser breeds without the law. Some seem to see today Antichrist in Catholicism and in Jews, international plotters of the protocol, and in the rising tide of color, a threat to all civilization and human culture. Even if these things were true, it would be difficult to bring the truth clearly before the ignorant mob and guide it toward the overthrow of evil. But if these be half true or wholly false, the mob can only be stirred to action by wholesale lying, and this is difficult and costly, and can only oh, difficult and costly and may be successfully answered or by a secret underground whispering, the methods of night and mask, the psychology of vague and unknown ill, the innuendo that cannot be answered, for it is not openly published. So Du Bois is doing something interesting here. He's, again, he, he cleverly brought up Mussolini. He's talking about uh, xenophobia and anti-Semitism, and, and he's tying this to fascism because, I mean, this was the precursor to the fashion. This is the same thing. Yeah. Right. And he's doing a, a brilliant job of describing not only what happened here, and that's that's the whole point of reading this book, right? We don't we don't read it because oh, it was you know interesting to to, to find out that Andrew Johnson was a drunk asshole. Um, you know, we don't read it so that we know who two time Daytona five hundred champion Jeff Davis is. Uh, we don't read it um because you know we we want to hear these horrific details that that we have to read through of what has happened to black people during these times we read it to understand what was happening and understand what's going on today so we can apply it in our fight against racism against the colonialism inherent in in the United States um against fascism um all the things of course you know we know must be resolved with a 
uh, socialist decolonial revolution that gives land back to indigenous people with the inclusion of a new Africa across the black belt. And, and I hope we make that clear over and over and over again, because that is what is necessary to solve this, but it's understanding our enemy. It's understanding our history. It's understanding what has happened and why and how it works. And this is a layout and an understanding of fascism that just towers above most out there. Yeah, it is. It is a masterwork in that regard. Mm -hmm. Secret organization had long been a method of of fastening dictatorship upon the South. It was seen in Louisiana in the early 19th century and helped in the annexation of Texas. It is a white widespread in Kansas. Senator Douglas called the whole secession movement the result of an enormous conspiracy. Charles Sumner said, not in all history, ancient and modern, is there any record of conspiracy so vast, so wicked, ranging over such spaces, both in time and history. The evidence taken by the Congressional Committee, which visited Kansas in 1856, furnished the most incontestable proof of the power and extent of those oath-bound orders. The different lodges were connected together by an effective organization and embraced great numbers of citizens of Missouri, and it was extended to other slaves into the territory. And its avowed purpose was not only to extend slavery into Kansas, but also into other territories of the United States. This dangerous society was controlled by men who avowed their purpose to extend slavery at all hazards. The renewed use of secret orders to fasten the dictatorship of property over labor upon the South began in New Orleans in 1865, when the rebel armies were disbanded and began to return to the city. First, apparently, appeared the Southern Cross, determined to drive out the new Northern capitalists and reduce the Negroes to slavery. Governor Wells said in 1866, should the secret associations now organize rapidly be able to regain the ascendancy which made it a living hell for years before the rebellion, I shudder at the consequences. Meantime, a larger, more inclusive secret order had been started in Tennessee known as the Ku Klux Klan. Tennessee, Alabama, Texas, Arkansas, and North Carolina soon fell under its action by the same methods. The new technique of the plan solidified the various objects and efforts and provided a new unity through emphasizing the importance of race. The race element was emphasized in order that property holders could get the support of the majority of white laborers and make it more possible to exploit Negro labor. But the race philosophy came out as a new and terrible thing to make labor unity and labor class consciousness impossible. So long as the Southern white laborers could be induced to prefer poverty to equality with the Negro, just so long as was labor movement in the South made impossible. And again, let's read that last sentence. So long as the Southern white laborers could be induced to prefer poverty to equality with the Negro, just so long was a labor movement in the South made impossible. And this is another another example of where you see so many things that you think, oh, they're getting it. They're getting a class conscious, a socialist undergirding, and then white chauvinism rears its head, and that is expressly a fascist stance. And and this is what it is, right? Oh yeah, you know, I'll take the equality, but I can't I can't take it at the cost of, of these horrible, you know, conspiracies to to make this other person equal. I, I would rather admire in my poverty. Right. That's that's what it is. That's that's why you can get poor people and the mob to support you. That's why there are you know, so many like Reaganite people that that still fester today. Exactly. Um, some excuse, uh, some excuse, 
some excuse the rise of the Ku Klux and the White League and the Knights of the White Camellia in the South with the plea that they were the answer to Negro suffrage and that the Union League started among Negroes were the cause of the secret orders among whites. There is no historic foundation for this. The Union League in the North was the movement of Northern white aristocracy, including most of the rich and well-to-do against defeatism and the menace of the Copperhead. Its powerful and influential social clubs in New York, Philadelphia, and elsewhere exist to this day. This Union League movement influenced the labor vote in the North. It came to the South with the carpetbaggers and used Northern technique. It employed among Negroes some ceremonies and secrecy, but it never contemplated murder and force. By no stretch of the imaginations could it be called an organization similar to or provocative of the Ku Klux Klan. Again, parallels today. You see you know, the rise of Proud Boys and things like that. And they'll blame like the existence of Antifa or uh, the fight fights for social justice, like black lives matter and, and things like that. And it's like, no, 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 you were already white supremacist. Fuck off. Um, the carpetbaggers organized the Negro voters and offered them more in wages and privileges than the whites. The logical answer of these planters in a free industrial democracy would have been to meet these offers by better ones. They chose instead force and secret revolution. It was not then the organization of union leagues that caused the Ku Klux Klan. It was determination to deprive the Negroes by force of any real weapon for economic bargaining. Their use of the ballot from 1868 to 1872 aroused the property holders to a frenzy of protest, but it also attracted certain elements of white labor and bade fair with reform and efficiency to build a Southern Labor Party. There was but one way to break up this threatened coalition, and that was to unite poor and rich whites by the shibboleth of race and despite divergent economic interests. The work of secret orders in 1868 to 1872 frustrated any mass movement toward union of white and black labor. Before 1874, the turmoil of Louisiana blazed the way. The New Orleans riot in 1866, which stirred the nation, influenced a presidential election, was due primarily to the fact that the head of a secret order was also chief of police. Boy, when have we heard that before? Some, uh, uh, some of those that work forces fill in the rest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Knights of the White Camellia came into provenance after Negro enfranchisement and were especially aimed at excluding Negroes from voting by terrorism and killing the leaders. The presidential election of 1868 spurred the planters and their allies to deliberate activity. They saw a chance to nullify the vote of black labor, unite with Northern Copperhead democracy, and capture the government. Frank Blair egged them on to revolution. The testimony shows that over 2,000 persons were killed, wounded, or otherwise injured in Louisiana within a few weeks prior to the presidential election of November 1868, that half the state was overrun by violence, and that midnight raids, secret murders, and open riot kept the people in constant terror until the Republicans surrendered all claim. But the most remarkable case is that of St. Landry, a planting parish on the river of Tesh. Here, the Republicans had a registered majority of 1,071 votes. In the spring of 1868, they carried the parish by 678. In the fall, they gave Grant no vote, not one, while the Democrats cast 4,787, the full vote of the parish for Seymour and Blair. 
Here occurred one of the bloodiest riots on record, in which the Ku Klux killed or and wounded over 200 Republicans, hunting and chasing them for two days and nights through the fields and swamps. Thirteen captives were taken from the jail and shot. A pile of 25 dead bodies was found half buried in the woods. Having conquered the Republicans and killed and driven off the white leaders, the Ku Klux captured the masses, marked them with badges of red flannel, enrolled them in clubs, and made them vote the Democratic ticket and then gave them a certificate of the fact. In the parish... In the parish of St. Bernard, a Negro was killed, a black mob killed a white man, three steamboats filled with armed ruffians left New Orleans for the scene of the riot. Before the trouble could be composed, a dozen or 15 men were slain. Frightful conditions prevailed up the Red River around Shreveport in Caddo and Bozier parishes, a trading center for Texas, Arkansas, and the Indian nations. A United States Army officer on duty in this place saw two or three men shot down in the street in front of a store in which he sat. He picked up the bodies of eight men who had been killed in one night. Never had he heard of anyone being punished for murder in that country. 120 corpses were found in the woods or were taken out of the Red River after a Negro hunt in Bozier Parish. For 10 days prior to the election of November, the streets were filled with men carrying shotguns, rifles, pistols, and knives. A band of Sicilian cutthroats called the Innocents, made up largely of fruit dealers, fishermen, oystermen, and other elements drawn from their markets, roamed the city hunting Negroes. Soon, no one could be found in the streets. Then the ruffians entered the houses to drive out the blacks, shooting them like rabbits as they ran. A colored man feared to sleep two nights in the same place. This bloody club had 2,000 members. There were more than 70 other clubs in New Orleans bearing such names as the Seymour Southrons, the Seymour Infants, the Seymour Tigers, the Blair Knights, the Swamp Fox Rangers, the Hancock Club, and the Rousseau Guard. Their appearance in parades led to riots in which many were killed and injured. Disorder extended to other parts of Louisiana. In one month, said General Hatch of the Freedmen's Bureau, 297 persons were slain in the parishes adjacent to New Orleans. During election time, the gun stores of New Orleans were thronged with buyers, and the price of Colt's revolvers doubled. Oh, gotta love supply and demand. A local paper said Thad Stevens is dead. The prayers of the righteous have at last removed the congressional curse. May old Brownlow, Butler, and all such political monsters follow the example of their illustrious predecessor. The coup d'etat failed, and the Reconstruction government was established. But although conditions during the next two years showed improvement, General Maurer, in command in New Orleans, said in 1869 that the country around Winsboro in Franklin Parish was infested by a gang of desperados and thieves who totally defied the civil authorities. All this was a challenge to the North and to democratic government. The response was only half-hearted. The North recoiled from force, and force alone could dislodge the planters and allied capitalists and firmly fasten labor government on the South. The North hesitated. Did it want labor government in the South? Should black rule white, even if it could? To enforce the 15th Amendment, a federal law was passed May 31st, 1870, after a long debate. There was an all-night session in the Senate May 21st. Conferences between the two houses, had fi- and finally, the bill became a law May 31st. The law made minute provisions to protect by federal action all citizens and the civil and political rights guaranteed by the Constitution. It enumerated 26 misdemeanors, 5 felonies, and 87 crimes. The punishments varied from a $500 fine and 1 year's imprisonment to $5,000 fine and 10 years imprisonment. It was the intention of this law to protect the Negro in using his right to vote, and the protection was to be carried out through federal officials. It was known that the Southern whites were keeping the Negro from voting, 
by methods which local officials and state courts could not touch. Witnesses were afraid to testify, and juries did not return verdicts even on clear evidence. Registration was hindered. Voters were bribed and intimidated. Negroes and white men were killed. The law brought the whole power of the government, militia, land, and naval forces, and courts to bear down upon persons who, by bribery or threat, sought to influence the Negro voter or to deprive him of his political rights. Meantime, the Ku Klux Klan, organized in Tennessee in 1865, became so widespread that in 1871, Congress appointed a joint committee to investigate it. This committee investigated conditions from April 1871 to February 9, 1872 and issued a voluminous report in 12 volumes covering most of the southern states. This formed a tremendous and invaluable picture of the situation in the South at that time. A federal election law was passed February 28, 1871, which provided for a national registration of voters, a necessary and inevitable step to rescue national democracy from local particularism and possible fraud. Such a law is still needed and still lacking. But of course... Firing back on all of this would be authoritarianism, and we can't have that. Exactly. Can't do that. President Grant was appealed to in March 1871 for military aid to suppress violence in South Carolina. He recommended legislation, and as a result, the Ku Klux Klan enforcement law of April 20th, 1871 was passed. It strengthened the Act of 1870 and was designed to destroy conspiracies against the 14th and 15th Amendments. It empowered the president to suspend the writ of habeas corpus when, in his judgment, the public safety shall require it. The president, by proclamation of May 3rd, 1871, called the attention of the nation to this act and said that it had been made necessary by persistent violations of the rights of citizens of the United States. He recognized the responsibility placed on him and did not wish to use these extraordinary powers, but it was his duty to make it known that when it was necessary, he would use them. As a matter of fact, he only suspended the writ of habeas corpus in the case of certain lawless counties in South Carolina. The actual military forces at his disposal at this time were limited, amounting to only about 9,000 troops or one-third of the army in the whole South. To emphasize his wish to be fair to South Carolina, Grant urged the removal of all political disabilities of former Confederates in December 1871. A bill for his pur- this purpose had passed the House but failed in the Senate because Sumner tried to couple it with his civil rights bill, and the Northern Democrats voted against it. It finally passed Congress May 1872 with the civil rights feature omitted. Also in 1872, the Ku Klux Klan law expired by limitation and was not extended. Meantime, te- Weird. Weird coincidence. Exactly as the Confederate states were welcomed back in, the KKK law expired and just wasn't extended. Yep. Strange. Meantime, in Tennessee, North Carolina, and Texas, the writ of habeas corpus had been suspended in the summer of 1870 by the governors, and in 1871, United States courts were filled with Ku Klux cases. In Mississippi, 640 people were indicted under these enforcement laws and 200 arrested, but not a single one convicted. President Grant declared that in some of the counties of South Carolina, two-thirds of the whites were organized and armed. In all, during 1870 to 1897, 5,172 cases were tried in the South and 2,200 in the North. Of these, 5,046 were dismissed, 1,432 convicted, 903 acquitted. The testimony was overwhelming, but conviction was impossible in the South. With 1872, new forms of violence took the place of old, intimidation, threats, and fraud. There were judicial discrimination, force, and actual civil war. Federal officials were kept busy, and the president tried in vain to execute the force acts. 
take it away. Okay. Um, the election of 1872 and the panic of 1873 changed the face of affairs. The labor governments built on Negro votes had kept Grant in office since the only alternative offered the Negroes was to vote for their own disenfranchisement. The Northern Reform Movement had begun to unite itself with big business and super finance and to sympathize with Southern planters. The planters had won this sympathy by denouncing the carpetbaggers as the as the cause of Southern corruption and thus compelling these representatives of Northern capital either to unite with the planters or to leave the South. The labor voted was divided along the color line with the three freedmen submerged and beneath and a wave of race a wave of race prejudice and economic rivalry. The time was now ripe for open war on the labor of the black belt. Seven states had been redeemed from labor domination under the leadership of the carpetbaggers and scalawags, i.e. Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, Arkansas, and Texas. This had been accomplished by unifying the white majority and suppressing the Negro vote by intimidation or economic pressure. It was now planned to move on the states where the Negro majority was such that only force could dislodge them. All right. That being said, that will do it for this week. Uh, we are going to pick up next week at the end of page 684. We are getting through 10 pages, which is what, we, what we're committed to until we've finished at least um, at minimum per episode. So we are there. Uh, that being said, uh, if you wanted to reach out to us, uh, and complain about our, the rate that we read, uh, you could do that at marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. We're at marksmadnesspod on Twitter. Uh, you can also join our discord server, which is linked in our Twitter bio, or you can always email us for the link. If you do not use Twitter because you're a better person and don't want to subject yourself to that hellscape, uh, Discord is just a great community. I am very proud of it. I'm very happy with it. Uh, and it is just a good place to find fellow comrades, places you can bounce off ideas, day-to-day life, uh, all the things that are sometimes hard if you feel isolated and alienated by capitalism, which we all do. Uh, that being said, David, it is time for disclaimers. It is time for disclaimers. Uh, well, this is, of course, a podcast that Nathan and I started because Nathan wanted to recapital. And that's the kind of book you read together. You discuss with someone. You're making sure you're tying it back to today. You're getting the most out of it. Uh, things like that in any kind of reading group. And a reading group of two is a little on the small side. Uh, so for as much as our biggest complaint is apparently the pace of reading, according to Nathan today, um, we we decided that more than two people would be good. Um, and so we recorded it and we said, what the hell? We get enough episodes and we decide it's good. We'll make it a podcast and share it with others and expand that reading group. And lo and behold, we did. And ever since then, our vision has been hopefully with whatever group you're out there organizing with, whatever party you're in, uh, your reading group, political education group, whatever it may be, is reading these works. And we can be another voice, another source of input in that uh, to help get the most out of it, to help get the best context, to help get the best understanding, the best tiebacks to today um in addition to whatever you're going through in your rooting group uh save for that let's assume you're reading something shorter or more tied to your um current actions or focus actions of that group uh and you're reading this on your own uh hopefully we can be that reading group we can add that context we can be that point of discussion we can make sure you get out of these works what you need to get out of it and save for that let's let's say you know it's a ebook type thing where we're reading every word like this one or it's one where we do more of a summary 
uh, whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you, because hopefully these works are out there guiding your action. When you put these works into action, that's a phenomenon called praxis. That is theory in action. Uh, and praxis is important. When I was talking about earlier, carrying on the spirit of, say, Attica, that's not just carrying on the spirit and remembering them. Uh, that's carrying on the ideology, the praxis, and in turn, the revolution that they were working towards. Um, so, you know, out there, you always need this theory going out there and animating into praxis because there's no such thing as praxis without theory. It is theory in action. And without praxis, this theory is completely useless. They are they go hand in hand. They are tied at the hip. Amen. As always, that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. <laughs>